Lord, go ahead and turn to, to Nehemiah chapters uh, 11 and 12. That's where we're going to be. Uh, the title of today's message, if you want to find it later, is uh, the 7-10 split of Nehemiah 11 uh, and 12. The reason I call it the 7-10 split is because uh, a 7-10 split, if you know anything about bowling, let me explain it to you just real quick. If you, I'm sure all of you kind of have a general concept, but a 7-10 split is when you have the 7-pin and the 10-pin are the only ones left. And the only way to make this, then, is, is you either hit the 10 or the 7 off of the outside wall, ricocheting back in to, to, to get the other one of that, okay? Even pro bowlers, for the 7-10 split, the, the average professional bowler, they hit the 7-10 split about 0.7 times. So that's every 145 attempts, they'll actually get it, okay? So it's, it's a hard shot to make. So kind of a play on words. I'm going to give you 7 points and then 10 points. And we're going to try to do two sermons in one Sunday. So we're shooting for a 7-10 split here, right? Uh, we're going to see how we can do. So just to give you some uh, remembrance or some background, Ezra brought captives out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. The king freed them. They went back. They were supposed to rebuild the city. Um, it's about 100 years in, in between here that, it, that it's taken them to do this. And then if you remember at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, his brother, came back. He asked him about it. He said, no, there's still, it's still, like the temple's built. They got that done, but the rest of it's all busted. The walls are all busted. Nobody's living where they're supposed to. It's, it's, it's miserable. So he sets off to do his own 710 split, right? Because, hey, if it's already been 100 years and they haven't built the walls, Nehemiah, what makes you think you're so special that you can go back and you can lead them? Well, Nehemiah was a, a man after God's own heart. That's what. He had the Holy Spirit with him too, right? Amen? And so if we're, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, we can say the same thing. We can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. So in your text, as you're looking at Nehemiah uh, 11 and 12, 11 breaks down like this. If you have a copy of the ESV, there's not going to be any scripture on the screen. You're going to have to follow in your own copy of God's Word. Uh, whether it's a tablet or a, a hard copy or whatever. In 11, the ESV, they have it split into two sections, 1 through 24 and 25 through 36, and it's the leaders in Jerusalem and then the villagers outside Jerusalem. Chapter 12, you can see there the priests and the Levites, the dedication of the wall, service of the temple, in that order. So the seven principles, spiritual principles, that we're going to look at are going to be from 11 mostly, and then bleeding over a little bit into 12, and the 10 aspects of rich worship are going to be mostly in 12, reaching back a little bit to chapter 11. Does that make sense of how the, how the blend of that is going to work? Uh, so without any further ado, let's pray, and, uh, and we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for scriptures like this, that are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom and discernment, so as we look at texts like this, that you would continue to draw us to your son, Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for him in whose name we pray. We ask your blessing on uh, not only the rest of today's service and this message, but on the rest of this week. Be with our ears and our hearts. Let the word go into our ears and penetrate to our hearts. And we ask that in your name again, for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. So seven spiritual principles that we see in this section. Now, this is just the name of lists, okay? Uh, a name of list. It's a list of names, and, uh, but overarching, so we're reaching all the way through what we've seen in Nehemiah, and we're condensing that in this chapter, chapter 11. The first thing I have for you out of these is the necessity of part partnership, and I'm actually going to give you two in a row so that you can jot the notes in case I go really fast. I know some of you uh, OCD folks are going to want every single 
one filled out. So I'm going to help you out. So Nehemiah uh, talks about this necessity of partnership. We see that all the way from the beginning. The reason why he wanted to go back to Jerusalem is because he wanted to be in partner with God's people. He cared for God's people. And so we see the necessity of partnership. But in Nehemiah 11.1, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. It says that the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. And so what is a, what is a city without a people? And so you have this city, you have the walls, and there's nobody in it. Well, that's not how God wants his people to be. He wants us to gather together. In fact, Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, you move all the way forward to Revelation, and in my mind, as I'm reading through this, I want you, too, to think about this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and this new earth, where one day, this new Jerusalem will be brought down, and he will again bring his people into it. And so here we see that, too, this necessity of partnership. Uh, this is made to be used. This city was made to be lived in. This is where the people are supposed to be. This is where the people of God dwell, is in Jerusalem. That's the holy city of God. If there's nobody there, then what's the point? So they do the, a tithe of the people, so to speak. They do one out of ten. And I want you to see here that they had to cast lots to bring them out. Well, nine out of ten remained in their towns. You have to understand that it is a... A, uh, a costly endeavor to move where you're at. You may know that. How many of you have moved in your life and you have to pack up everything? I just helped somebody move this week. We had to pack up their house and we had to make several trips either to storage lockers or to family members' houses where they were storing things while they wait to see what God has for them in this next stage of their life. And it's a, it's a, a duty to do that. But they give lots and this is the sovereign choice of God and this is the same for Christians today. If you're here... You may have chose to walk into the door this day, but the only reason you chose to walk into the door is because Jesus chose to put that desire into your heart. You see, Scripture says that we love him because he first loved us. And so it's by the lots that God has cast for us that we have this partnership. The next is this primacy of holiness that we see there. This is a cost of the pe- people, a potential inheritance. They have to go into this land. But in uh, Nehemiah 11.1, 1, again, as I give you the next point for this next section, uh, it says that they lived in Jerusalem, this holy city. Nehemiah was obsessed with the holy. We see that all the way through. That's why he wept over the city. That's why he wept over the people. That's why he wanted God's people to be there. He understood that they should be set apart. As we look through this section, as you do your own research later, you're going to see that they were purified, that they were set apart, that things were dedicated, that he made them separate. Remember we talked about that just last week. That is this idea of being holy. And so as we, as Christians, seek to uh, employ these truths that we find, there is a primacy of holiness that we ourselves should be practicing. You should look different than those that you work with. You should sound different than those you work with, those who you go to school with. Uh, The idea of holiness is being set apart for a purpose. Nehemiah loves holiness, and we should too. It should be a a primacy of our spiritual truths. I kind of said this before, but what's a holy city with an unholy people? I like this quote by Richard Baxter. He's a a theologian that I'll, I'll read. He's very good. If you pick up anything by him, I think you'll be blessed. But Richard Baxter says, A holy calling will not save an unholy man. And so I want to press upon you this morning that truth. If you think, if you're under the impression that you can just come to a holy place, a church, a place set aside for the worship of a holy God, and you can set aside a portion of time, and you can just come in and do that, and that's what's going to save you, you are deceived. We must have the holiness of another 
We must have Christ's holiness attributed to our account in his primacy for salvation, his primacy for engagement, his primacy to Nehemiah should be primacy to us. And then the next is the privilege of service. We see that here in uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 11 2. It says the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem so that they could serve. In verse 2, the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I want to tell you again, you need to count the cost and weigh the reward. That's what Christianity is, right? I think oftentimes from the pulpit or we ourselves make the mistake where uh, we see somebody whose life is, is not going well and we say, oh, they just need Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But Jesus is not going to immediately fix and take away all the consequences that they have in this world. There are some consequences of our choices that we are going to have to suffer. One of the consequences, I guess positively and negatively, for these who are thinking of it as a privilege to serve us, the people blessed all the men who willingly, remember they were casting lots, and one out of of the ten would come, the rest of the nine would go to their own cities. You have to remember what's happening here. Yes, it's a privilege to come into the city. Yes, it's a a privilege to volunteer. Uh, But there are some who are volunteered and some who are conscripted into the service of the Lord. Yet we see in the text all are honored. 11, 4 through 24 are going to be the names of all these people who were conscripted or who willingly volunteered to serve in this manner. I want to read to you a quote. In the late 6th century, Gregory the Great made use of the two great Old Testament accounts of a prophetic call as he contrasted Jeremiah, who was conscripted conscripted into God's service, and Isaiah, who volunteered. There is, wor- there is room for both in the Lord's work. Jeremiah's response is based on one of love of God, and Isaiah is on love for his neighbor. Isaiah desired the, activ- the active life in the office of preaching. Jeremiah preferred to express his love to God in a life of quiet devotion. Both of them, though, understood the value of serving the great God of Israel. And so I want to ask you, do you view service to God as a privilege or a duty or perhaps even a drudgery? You see, because service to our God is a privilege and all those who serve should be honored. So we have scriptures like this that have the list of names. And I know if you're anything like me, let's just be honest, right? I get to parts of scripture like this. And I roll my eyes, internally, I guess maybe, and I say to myself, great, another list of names that I can't pronounce, of people who are doing jobs that I have no you know, immediate context to understand. But with a deep breath, I dive in thinking to myself, God said that all of his Bible is profitable, so this must be too. And I drudgerily read through it. But these names are recorded so that these men, these families would be honored because of the privilege of that service. The next thing we see here is a a spiritual truth, spiritual principles, the variety of ministry. Drew preached on this while I was gone, and Nehemiah talks about it here. I want you to examine these lists and see the variety of what they do. There are priests, there are Levites, there are singers, there are men of valor, dudes, How cool would that be to have your name written in the Bible and then beside it, beside your name, who was a man of valor, right? I mean, if I could do the Tim the Toolman grunt thing, that would be the place for it, right? 
And so these, there are administrators, there are maintenance people, there are uh, all the people that are behind the scenes of this thing, the, 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 the ones who are making the gold rings for the curtains, the ones who are doing the curtains, the ones who are raising the sheep to make the wool for the curtains. Does this make sense? And so all these, this list represents the variety of ministry that makes up this body of Israel, which makes up this body of the church as we look at these spiritual truths and give them to ourselves today. 11.16 says, who were over the outside work of the house of God? What did they have to do? Well, they had to, they had to, they had to manage it. Just like we have people in this congregation who you may not even know because they come on days other than Sunday, they come and they spray for weeds in the parking lot. Or they come and they plant plants around the building. Or they weed those flower beds around the building. Or they come and they pick up sticks for the people who mow. Or, or they come and they... Uh, they mow sometimes when we, before we had people that we paid for that, right? Um, they, they will do all kinds of things. They'll come to the building and they'll, they'll uh, vacuum the floors or they'll wash the windows or they'll clean the toilets. So there's a variety of ministry. And today's church is no different than it was then. And of course, yes, the church has a preacher, yet there is a multitude of these important behind-the-scenes ministry opportunities of which this church simply would not function. And we see that some of these, you need grace of humility. This service may not be always recorded, but it's never forgotten. What do I mean by that? Well, you see in this scripture, in this text, and in God's book of life, there are certain things that are recorded, right? And I'll just give you an example. In this church, 30, 40 years from now, or whenever God takes me away, and I stop pastoring here, uh, usually the pastor will be remembered, right? Especially if they've been there for a long time. Like at Merson Church, for example, Pastor Pike was there for, I think, 40 years. And so people remember Pastor Pike at least for a generation, maybe a generation and a half, maybe two generations. And then after that, Pastor Pike's name will be forgotten. But let me ask you this. Do you know the elders that went through that church during the time that Pastor Pike was there? Or the deacons? Are the people who led worship music? Maybe you do, because maybe you're related to them, right? But maybe you don't know all of them, I guarantee that. Do you know the Sunday school teachers? Uh, do, you, do you know the small group leaders? Uh, do you know the woman who faithfully came and vacuumed the church and sat in the third pew back, four seats over? No, but do you know who does? God does. And so their names might not be recorded, but... God does not forget them. It says in 11.1, 11.20, 11.25, it talks about that the people cast these lots to bring the, these ten into this holy city while nine of the rest remained in their towns. Those nine other ones were doing things necessary for the function of not only the people who made up this city, uh, but also for the temple and the worship. In 20, in the rest of Israel, the priests, the Levites, were in all the towns of Judah. Everyone in his own inheritance. You, you know, some of these could not go into this holy city because they had to go in the rest of the town because these Levites, these, these priests, they were the Sunday school teachers. This is an illiterate society who only knows the word of God by word of mouth being passed down from generation to generation. So in the end, instead of, in the end, at the end of the day, instead of going home and sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, at the end of the day, they would go home and somebody would come and teach them scripture and they would tell the stories of the Bible to one another. And as for these villages with their fields and some of the people of Judah lived in, I want to read to you another quote. 
The story of Christian work and witness over the years is something far more enriching than a record of great names and remarkable events. It is about millions of unremembered but committed believers, ordinary church members, forgotten ministers, evangelists, track distributors, Bible class leaders, Sunday school teachers, sick visitors, caretakers, cleaners, door stewards, and most important of all, prayerful intercessors. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And some of those gifts are humbly used. There is grace and honor in the humble service of God. Second to last is the importance of family. I want you to see throughout 11 and 12, there's a bunch of list of names, right? 62 times in just chapter 11 alone, in just verses 1 through 24, son is present. The son of. 62 times. Do you know what the son of implies? That there was a dad. Do you know what that implies? That there was a mom. Because science, right? And so for son to be there, there was a dad and a mom at very least. And often in the text, we see things who says it was the brother of. And so here's what we're seeing in text, the importance of family, because the bottom line is one generation shall commend your work to another and shall declare your mighty acts, Psalm 145, 4. It is oftentimes in the family where these sons would learn and be encouraged in the work of the Lord and where they would be trained in the work of the Lord and the people who knew them would then set them forward so they could actually do the work of the Lord. And so Nehemiah 11, 1 through 24, these 62 times, all these names don't just represent individual men. They represent their mothers and their fathers. They represent their wives who gave up time with these men so that they could do these works to the Lord. You know, I don't, I'm going to embarrass her just for a minute. This is a just came to my mind thing. Some of you guys will thank me for different stuff I do. How often do you thank my wife for the times that she gives up for me so that I can serve you? I don't know if you know this. Did you know you're getting a two-for-one special? Anytime anyone calls a pastor to a church, Pastor Drew, how often do you thank his wife for giving up time with him so he can do what he does? You know you're getting two-for-one when you hire a pastor, right? I don't know if you knew that. Sorry, it's true, and I love you. Family is where emotional security, material necessity, physical care, intellectual stimulation, moral value, spiritual teaching, all those things take place. Now, if you're single and you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, man, I feel like I'm a little bit robbed, welcome to the church, beloved, because you are a brother and a sister in Christ. You are a mother or a father to those who are here around you, those who are less mature in the faith of you, those who are in the generations by by your tithes or your offerings, by your time and your service. You are raising up for yourself a whole other generation of people. And it's because of your familial care for them that they are nurtured and they are encouraged and they are given what is needed to serve their Lord until the day that they meet Him. And by the way, Every single one of us are adopted anyway, aren't we? 
were adopted into a family because this was not the family we originally belonged to. And so the last of the seven is the priority of worship, which launches us, of course, into the next ten. All of Nehemiah, the city, I mean, let's just think about it for a minute. Why did the city of Jerusalem matter? Why does the wall to protect that city matter? It mattered because that's where the temple of God is, was. I guess was, we're the temple now. And so all of Nehemiah is because of worship. That's what drove Nehemiah to go there in the first place. He had a posh spot, man. Cupbearer to Artaxerxes. He wanted nothing. Finest clothes, right? We talked about this, right? Like he wasn't dressed like a scrub in the presence of a king. You don't do that. He was clean. He was smelling fresh, I'm sure. We don't think about those things because you got showers and like you got a whole wardrobe full of clothes and stuff. But he left because of worship. He wanted God to be honored. He cared about who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Nehemiah eleven seventeen, the son of Asaph, who was leading, leader of the praises. Or 11.22, the son of Asaph and the singers. When we think of the priority of worship, we often think of just simple song. But it is so much more than that. Worship of the Lord can be anything that we do that is dedicated to him. It's often praise and prayer. Worship is the chief end of man. It is what we were designed for. It is where we find our usefulness and our wholeness. In fact, the builder's hammer is no less expressive of praise than the choir's voices. Right. And so... In 11 and 12, what's happening here is they just made this covenant and now Nehemiah is gathering them all together for the purpose of bringing them into worship. He's saying, all right, you made that command. You're, you're going to follow those commands. You're going to make this covenant. Great. Let's split everybody up so we know who's going to live here when this is all done. And then chapter 12, like we're going to talk about the aspects of rich worship. They're like, all right, everybody ready? You half go that way around the city. You half go that way around the city. And we're going to march and we're going to meet in the house of our God. And then we are going to worship like nobody has ever worshiped before. Remember how they said that before? Like, there's never been a time where we kept the boots ever like this ever before. And it's like, slow down. Yes, there was. But to them, there wasn't. And so let's get into this, these 10 aspects of rich worship. Because, because here's, here, here's the bottom line. All of Scripture... Nehemiah, today's message, every message I'll pe- preach from, from here on out un- until the Lord takes me home, every single sermon you've ever heard, every Bible passage you've ever read is all about bringing you to a place of worship because God is worthy of worship. And so let's talk about these 10 aspects of rich worship because I don't know about you, I would like to have rich worship. William Temple describes adoration as one of the most selfless emotions of which our uh, nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for the self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. I got three quotes, so here that's the first. Another, uh, although Christians formally recognize the priority of worship, they do not have a common mind regarding its character and form. Uh, that's just a fancy way of saying we fight about music a lot and how we're going to run things, and that's silly. 
And then the last one is this. One of the most pressing issues which needs to be at the heart of contemporary discussion is not what pleases us in worship, but what most honors God. And so that's the trajectory I want to take this morning. I'm not going to give you 10 ways where we can worship better. I'm going to say here's 10 things that we need to understand how worship honors God, because that's what worship is. It's not about you. Um, so the first is its purpose. The next is its nature. We'll do it the same way. Uh, there's In this text, the purpose of this, they, the purpose is really three things. Celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication. Those are the three main themes. Uh, Nehemiah 12, 27 fleshes that out. It says they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving. So firstly, celebration. It is about God, not us. The who, the what, the how, who he is, what he's done, what he will do, what he's doing. And so I have the question for you is how often do you say to yourself on Sundays, I really didn't get anything out of that today? Because it's not about you. It's about thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving should be specific because God has given us so many things. How's that song go? Let's... uh, Something, name them one by one or something like that. Count your blessings, name them one, count them one by one. You guys know, and if you don't, you can Google it or talk to somebody who was loud next to you when I was just asking that question. But if we spent, we could spend our Sundays just shouting out the things that God has given us over our lives and the blessings that he has, he has given us, the, the, the stupid things he has saved us from and delivered us from, and the good, gracious things he has given to us that we don't deserve, and the things that we have to look forward to that we haven't yet received, right? I mean, we could spend all Sunday doing that. We could spend our whole time here gathering together doing just that. And then lastly, as we see in the text here, this dedication. Dedication means to give over the work of human hands to God's ownership. Worship demands the surrender of ourselves. That's what worship is about. It's a surrender to him of all that he has given to us. So how often do you say to yourself on Sundays, I really didn't get anything out of that today? I guess the question you should be asking yourself is, did I bring him my all today? When we walk in these doors, your your thought shouldn't be, man, I hope that he preaches a good sermon for me today. The thought should be, am I bringing my first fruits to him today? Regardless of what, what, what the pastor says. Second is the nature. However skilled the instrumentalist or the choirs, Scripture emphasizes a quality which takes priority over musical ability and eager participation of gifted people in worship. The hearts of the worshiper are of greater importance than their voices. Translation, right? You may be the best singer in this room. But if your heart's not right, God doesn't want you up here leading anyone. Nehemiah 12.30, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people. Anything less than pure hearts as we come is just mere singing. What you do in the car and in the shower. It's nothing special. It's, it's not worship. And, and you know how I can prove it to you? Every single one of us in this room, probably, know the words to a song 
that you also don't want anyone else in this room to know that you know the words to that song. It's just how it is. You can sing that song. Maybe you shouldn't sing that song, right? But you could sing that song, and you could sing it word for word, and that song is not worship. That's just mere singing. And at the same token, you all know worship songs. We can come in here, we can look up at the screen like a moth looks into a bug zapper, and our minds can be somewhere else, anywhere else, and we can be mouthing these words, and all we're doing is singing, and our hearts are equally as far from God. And when that's the case, you not only rob from God, you rob from yourself. Because that's what we're created for, is to worship and to experience rich worship in the Lord. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. You can write if you're a note taker. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Romans 12, 1. John 4, 23 through 24. I'm not going to read them. You can just look them up. Next one, it's traditions. Rich worship does have traditions, but hold on there. It also has variety. We are debtors to our past. We are debtors to those who have came before us. Nehemiah 12, 45 and 46, and Nehemiah 12, 24. 45 and 46, in the middle it says, According to the command of David and his son Solomon, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors for the singing, for the singers. And 12, 24, it says in the latter part of that verse, according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Which means there was some tradition, there was some methodology for how they gathered together. There were some rules and some regulations for people when they came into the temple. Which we're not surprised about that, right? When you see the Levitical law, we see all the different things where they had to do. They had things down to the tassels of their garments, right? So surely David and Solomon, as they, were, as, as they actually made the temple and as they were actually bringing singers in, they had some rules and some regulations of how they were supposed to do. And so these traditions, these, these worshipers were pleased to continue these traditions in worship at the temple because it, it gave them a gravity and a sense of camaraderie. It, it reminded them of the reality of the faith of their forefathers. It encouraged them to continue and teach that faith to their generation and the generation after them. It, it declared the solidarity of the faith throughout generations does it not gladden your heart to know that some of the hymns that we sing were sung by those who founded our nation? Who, who, who were persecuted on, on, under the kings and the queens of, of, of England back when Bloody Mary was there and George and all that stuff? Does it not please you to know that some of the songs and the, and the hymns and surely the psalms were sung? These psalms were sung by Paul and Peter and Mark and Matthew, the apostles. But also, it, God is a God of variety. The, the same God who made the crow also made the peacock, did he not? And so in Nehemiah 12, 27, 12, 35, we see sections like this. It said that they uh, bring to Jerusalem, celebrate this dedication with gladness, thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres said that the priests were playing trumpets. In Psalm 150, in verses 3, 4, and 5, it says, Praise him with trumpet sounds. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. And everyone gasped. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, crashing cymbals. Worship is meant to be a shared experience by which a variety of participants bring in their particular gifts. 
And so how do you respond during the singing of a hymn? Do you think, yawn, let's move on to the good stuff? Or how do you respond during the singing of a contemporary song? Do you think, man, there's no meat on those bones? Let me, let me really deepen the pond here. How would you respond if all of a sudden we had somebody rap up here for the glory of God? Because by the way, I will rip one out. No, not really. <laughs> or what about dance? Or what about clapping? Or the raising of hands? How about an xylophone solo? Could you worship the Lord with that? And so how do you respond to these things? Do we, do we say, they, they, they really say more about your heart and the value you see God than it does about the method of that worship. Next aspect of rich worship is the priority we put on it. It's not what you do, it's how you do it, right? 27 and 43 of chapter 12, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving. And in 43, they offered great sacrifices on the day and rejoiced, for God had made them to rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Drab and dreary is not what God intends for you or what he wants from you. Those who participate and lead in worship take note. Get it? Take note? I know, whatever. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything, okay? So there's a time for mourning, and there's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for weeping, there's a time for dancing, right? But what I want to encourage you is weep not in the house of the Lord. Weep not on Sunday morning. Weep. Weep uh, Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday morning, beloved, weep not in the house of the Lord. Do you know why? Because Jesus solves whatever is causing your weeping. Jesus has dealt with it on the cross. Look at Nehemiah. Remember? They read this law. They talked about the booths and the tabernacles. And Nehemiah told them, don't, don't be crusty right now. Let's go celebrate the booths. Let's have a big party and there'll be time for that later. And that's exactly what they did, right? They did all this feasting, all this celebrating, and then the very next thing, they came back with sackcloth and ashes, and they said, okay, now is the time to deal with this. Beloved, do not weep. On, this is not fake it till you make it. Not at all. What this is, is this is a call from me to you, from Nehemiah to us, to live in the peace that surpasses all understanding and to be satisfied in the joy of your salvation. That's what that means. We have five more, so whoever's calling you, tell them you're going to be late. Our witness, others will see and take note. Nehemiah 12, 31, verse 38, verse 43. And on to the wall, they appointed two great choirs to give thanks. One on the south wall, and then the choir that was on the north wall. And they followed them, half the people on the wall above. all this. So they're on top of this wall that they just built. They had trust in their foundation, do you? And they were walking. And it says that they were rejoiced and, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. All occasions of worship need to incorporate some essential elements of adoration, of thanksgiving, of praise, because people who participate will ensure that in sharing these gifts, they always direct the attention not to themselves, but to the Lord. 
Anything we do is totally ineffective if it doesn't stem from our desire to turn people's gaze to the one who's worthy. Your worship is a witness. What does it testify about you? What does it say about your faith, about your God? Unity is the seventh, quality is the eighth. Unity, look around yourself today and marvel, will you? Only God can take so many so different and draw them together. So many different backgrounds. And that's saying something, because quite frankly, this is a pretty homogenous group, right? But think about other churches around the globe. Think about multicultural, multi-generational churches around the globe. Think about our brothers and sisters who are also in homogenous, generally singular cultural churches around the globe, but who all make up the church universal, the bride of Christ. Nehemiah 12, 27 through 29, uh, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. The singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem. It's sad that such an opportunity for unity has often become a source of division because of, because of things like this. We care so much about the quality or the sound or the tone or the color of the lights or if there is no lights or if there's a drummer or no drummer. or how We care about all those things instead of this opportunity for us to come together and say, look, I mean, there's some of you that are generations different from me. We, 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 really, we really don't have that much in common. I mean, you might be a female, I'm a male. You're 30, 40 years older than I am. I mean, I, I talk about Marvel superhero stuff. You talk about farming. I don't know. I don't know anything about far- I, I learned what hay and straw was when I moved to Allegan. I didn't know. <laughs> I know all kinds of stuff now because you teach me. But what kind of division might be destroyed if we all shared no ambition other than simply the glory of God, which brings me to the quality of worship. And I want to ask you, what kind of quality of worship does our God deserve? The answer is the best. 43 through 44, again, uh, they offered great sacrifices on that day and rejoiced. Uh, The first fruits required by the law, it says in there. Can there be any argument that that our God deserves anything less than the best? Yeah, if we're honest, less than the best is often what we bring. I mean, think about it. We, there is innumerable things that vie for your attention, that vie for your finances, that vie for your energy. And worship often receives neither our best nor our total commitment to it. And I want to ask you this morning, doesn't that bother you? I mean, I mean shouldn't that bother us? I mean, what are we going to say to Jesus when we see him face to face? And why would we wait to bring him the best until, until it's too late? And so that brings us to the last two, the cost of rich worship and the vitality of rich worship. Firstly, the cost. Then do you think this kind of worship costs something? Because I do. Look at Nehemiah 12, 44 through 47, and, and count the cost. There was labor 
physical labor. There was financial cost. There was danger. There was uh, time, etc. I mean, think about what it cost Nehemiah to, to go there and do this. A posh position, and then people who wanted to kill him in the Valley of Ono, remember the field of Ono, uh, and, and then opposition, heartache and headache as he was dealing with, with people who didn't want to do this kind of stuff. Intense, worshipful experience can create a fervor of generosity, but time often tempts our flame. <laughs> no, I won't make any jokes or coming. And so we can, in times of it, a great time of worship. We, we can often feel to ourselves, oh man, I want to do this every time, but then, but then we don't put forth what is necessary for that kind of rich worship experience. Does, does that make sense? We want a rich worship experience, but, but we don't want to spend the time with the Lord throughout the rest of the week, or we, we can't spend the time is what we'll say. But I want you to remember back to Nehemiah 10, 35 through 39, they promised to keep these religious duties. And so if you want to experience rich, deep connection with God, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you financial whatever because you've got to put something else off to, to be with God. It's going to cost you danger, perhaps. Pursuing rich worship of God will cost you something, but, but ultimately, friend, the ultimate cost was already paid for you on your behalf. And that is what brings me to vitality. In the end, John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you guys know what a superlative is? Um, I know my wife does, but um, I had to look it up. (laughs) A superlative is usually an adjective or an adverb, and the definition of it is expressing the highest or very high degree of equality. So what Jesus said here, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A a translation of that would be that they would have exceedingly abundant life. Meaning life that is, you know the text, right? Pressed down, measured, and flowing over, right? Uh, Life that is beyond our wildest expression and ability to comprehend. A, A life that exceeds all bounds and breaks all barriers. That's what's happening in this chapter as we look at the kind of worship that they're experiencing in verse 12, 43, it says, they offered great sacrifices. God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. In verse 27, it talks about celebrating with gladness. 31, with great choirs. 43, great joy. Again, these superlatives match who we are worshiping because we have a great and awesome God. We have a steadfast, loving kindness God, a God who practices steadfast, loving kindness. We have a God who is rich in mercy. We have a God who is abounding in grace and forgiveness. And so when you have received this forgiveness, when you meditate on the love that this God through this sacrifice of his son has given to you, when we contemplate the generous gift of the spiritual blessings of an inheritance, not our own, and yet 
freely given to us by the adoption of a heavenly father into an eternal family. When we gather together to sing about and deepen our affections for this glorious God who supplies us his spirit to heal and to train and to transform us as his children, that is when we will experience the richness that is worship. There's nothing half-hearted about the worship here in Nehemiah 12. And that kind of worship is life-giving. Does your worship of God leave you feeling alive or drained? Because one is a sign of work and one is a sign of worship. So let's tie it all up, shall we? The 710 split. The odds of making a 710 split for a pro bowler they managed to, to get this and make it a spare. They managed to do that 0.7% of the time. So once in every 145 attempts. When they make it, they rejoice. To this day, only three times has this happened in pro bowling association history on a televised event. Only three throughout the history of television. So what do you think are the odds for a person to get a 7-10 split in all 10 frames and make all 7-10 splits per frame? The odds are astronomically small. Just like our odds to in our own power, in our own strength, in our own might, somehow equaled the scale between us and a holy God. But do you know who bowled a perfect 300 for you? Jesus did. And Jesus invites you today. And so these seven spiritual principles are only accessed through Christ. These 10 aspects of rich worship are only expressed and experienced in Christ. And so if any of this is attractive to you, I invite you to come to Christ, to rejoice in Christ. Because 11 through 12 points to Christ, our need for Christ, our desire to follow and worship Christ, who, who any 710 split you have can pick up the spare and then some. Let's pray.